Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Brent, and Neurofeedback legend, Jake Uncleman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Dr. Laura Janssens can be found at janssens.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskipren.com. And Jake Uncleman, he is all over Google. Just look him up. How's that, Jay? Good enough? I'll live with it. You'll live with it? Okay. We'll edit that out in post. We recently had a whole bunch of mental health news items uh, come come through the wires. And we, you know, we've been so busy the past few weeks with our guests, we haven't been able to address uh, any of these things. So we figured, you know, let's take a little time on this show and, and address some of them. Uh, for instance, uh, Dr. Laura, you had something on Alzheimer's. Yeah, there's a new drug approved by the FDA. I don't know how to say it, a Duhelm. And uh, FDA approved it despite having uh, scientific uh, clinical trials to support its efficacy. So, you know, we were talking before uh, the show about yeah, how FDA became politicized and some, some members of the FDA dropped out and kind of protest and just kind of a, a compelling thing. Uh, that um, is this drug, $56,000 a year. And I don't know who, who pays for that if Medicare is going to jump on board with that, that, that price. But, you know, you're promising this population, you know, how, how uh, prevalent is, you know, Alzheimer's disease these days. And, uh, you know, a large percentage of people over the age of 55 are, are um, going to come down with this thing or develop this thing. And so we have this new drug of question, questionable efficacy. So that's kind of one issue we were discussing. And then this other issue, how, how recently that, that science is um, kind of being devalued in the last you know, few years and politicized as if you know, science is a football team and I'm, I'm either gonna root, root for it or not. So it's just kind of confusing and compelling that this is kind of coming down in the last few years. And I guess I'll kind of toss it to Jay and kind of well, what's his opinion about this and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, it, it was very depressing to see the uh, change in the FDA. And, and it's extremely obvious in this situation. You know, the, the drug uh, had two studies to try to support it. One study did not meet criteria, so it's no support at all. And the other one barely met criteria. But the problem was that 19% of the people in the studies ended up with a brain swelling or a brain bleed. The impact of the drug's positive effect is a very, very slight extension. Um, that, that's what they're claiming is a very slight extension in, in the quality of life. And again, it, it wasn't it didn't really get supported in the data from the study. Independent scientific review board for the FDA recommended unanimously against approval of the drug. And when the FDA commissioners approved it, the scientific review panel had many members that resigned. And I sure as hell would resign. I mean, if you're a scientific review panel and you're uh, scientific advice is ignored. You know why? Why sit on the damn panel at that point? You, you know you're being ignored. This is a, a travesty, and it's anti-scientific. 
And it's not even economic, for God's sakes. Uh, $56,000 for a medication? You know, uh, 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 I'm on meds to keep me alive, and they're not cheap. That's unreasonable. Alzheimer's is not an easy diagnosis. Oh, doc, my memory's not so good. Well, you know, could be depression. Could be a totally other kind of dementia. Come on, you've got a difficult to diagnose category with an over-the-top price on a medication that's iffy for the effect and has a, a one in five chance of giving you a bad brain problem. So I don't line up for that kind of stuff. And I'm very disappointed in the FDA. Uh, again, I, being science-oriented, the FDA has always been kind of, you know, uh, a, a scientific backstop uh, to, to keep charlatans from producing something and uh, hawking it off to the public. But at this point, it looks like charlatans have produced something and they're hawking it off to the public with the FDA's approval. And that, again, it's, it's a travesty. So I, I don't remember a time where people were questioning science at this level. I mean, of course you should question, you know, science and, and, but the scientific method, you know, there, there's a reason for that. What, what's your opinion, Jay? Like why, you know, why in the last few years are they disregarding science and the scientific method? What do you think? There, there's a lot of people that have given lip service to science and don't really understand science. You know, it, it's not a, a collection of facts. It's a process for evaluating. I think that's somewhat misunderstood. You know, if, if quote, science changes its mind, it, it just means that there's been more data and the analysis shows a, a different outcome. And science does march on. Uh, I mean, right. uh, the, the newfound uh, facts in, in uh, science are common. Um, uh, we're, we're evaluating the environment and uh, issues all the time. And as new facts uh, uh, emerge, you have to uh, accommodate them in your model. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, it's a, uh, science is an evolving uh, process, not a collection of facts that are immutable. Right. So the process, you know, if I just simplify the scientific method for a second, so, you know, there's a couple of things that, that would uh, qualify a study for uh, the scientific method. And, and some of it has to do with like double blind studies, uh, triple blind studies where the researcher doesn't know what the question is. The patients don't know who's getting the real drug or placebo. And so that way there's no examiner effects, you know, uh, interfering with, with the results. So that certainly has something to do with the scientific method. And the other part has to do with statistically can we say that whatever the outcome of the study, is that a real effect of the study or can that happen by chance? And so th those are the couple things and obviously more that will deem a study uh, effective. You know, as we're having this conversation, you know, obviously we're the Neuro Noodle uh, Network podcast and, and we're doing things, you know, with neurofeedback that don't have these kind of studies to back it necessarily. There, there's a couple, there's a, there's a good handful, but a lot of the, the, the research in neurofeedback is kind of anecdotal. Um, it's certainly developing, you know, more recently, um, but, but maybe that's the answer to my own question is, is you know, the, the, the drugs and the other methods, there, there are a handful or, you know, 
people on the bell curve that don't fit the the study. You know, there we can't um, uh, represent everybody in a study, and maybe that you know those are the people who pursue yeah. neurofeedback that all the other stuff doesn't work, or they're outliers. They need something else. So I, I could see on one hand where you know you, you feel like. You know, I've, I've tried the scientific method. I've tried those drugs. I've tried these other things that are supposedly uh, working for the average uh, person in my population, but but I need something else. So I, I guess I could see both sides, sort of. I can't see the $56,000 price tag in neurofeedback. It's really not, not that expensive, but um, but I could see where people are kind of looking for the fountain of youth and, and they want to prevent, you know, the ugliness of Alzheimer's, you know, the effects individually into the family and early death and all these, you know, horrible things that can happen with that. Uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with everything you guys have said and back to the Alzheimer's drug approval. And, and to Jay's point, I think, I think five out of seven of the panelists said no thanks to this thing, but it still went through. Right. And then a few resigned as Jay mentioned. And then Laura, you brought up the number the 56 grand. It's a giant price tag for this thing. And you and I, in a side conversation, you know, kind of joke, but it's just not that funny. Any any good spy movie, um, you know, when there's no really logical reason for something happening, it's the, the answer is follow the money. And, it, you know, not to go down that rabbit hole on, on our show here, but 56 grand paid out by Medicare, like that's, that's you know, that's that's taxpayer dollars going into that. It's, it's this ambiguous pool as opposed to maybe insurance, which insurance is considering covering too, but there would of course be co-pays and things like that. So it, it's a head scratcher and, you know, depending on how cynical you want to be, it's not, um, but it's discouraging for sure. And for the reasons both of you have mentioned, right? You have folks that know what the hell they're talking about saying, hey, this thing's probably not FDA approvable worthy. And then it gets slammed through. So it is discouraging and it gets you wondering what the heck do we go through this process. And I think the drug in particular is intended for early stages anyway, yeah. mild yeah. cognitive decline type folks. And I think we can all agree that if this thing does get to market and it's out there, somebody who's in advanced stages and maybe has a glimmer of hope, they're, they're not going to care. They'll say, sure, let's do it. There's not much out there that's branded for you know Alzheimer's treatment because it is such a multifaceted disease. It's not one thing, right? So that's why nothing's been efficacious so far because it's hard to corral all, all the contributions to the symptom picture, right? So anyway, it's yeah. just easy to see folks that would be maybe in a desperate state jumping on and trying it anyway. And you know, as you mentioned, Jay, there's some pretty significant side effects. It's a Russian roulette, you know, kind of choice at some at some level, I think. The price point isn't that far off on other uh, kinds of things, but most of those other kinds of things are really easily diagnosed. The early onset Alzheimer's is almost an impossible diagnosis. Uh, cancer medications, $14,000 a month. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but, but it's quite effective. The, the rate of, of lung cancer survival has drastically shifted in the last five years. Uh, used to be the average is 10 months from diagnosis. Now people are doing multiple years after diagnosis, a, a genetically targeted medication. You know, in, in a case I was uh, close with, um, the insurance company wouldn't allow payment for the blood test to identify the genetic med. But once you paid for that, then they 
would pay for the med. So, yeah, you had to go out of pocket uh, a fair chunk in order to end up getting approved for it uh, because of the proper uh, uh, genetics. But, you know, high priced meds are not at all uncommon nowadays. Uh, genetically engineered uh, medications are expensive to produce. And uh, believe me, the drug companies are making their money back. Now, they'll claim that they're investing it all in new drug development. R&D, um, right? Yeah, I, I, uh, I've seen the facts on that. Uh, it, it's, it's bonuses and stock buybacks and um, uh, PR and lobbying and all of that sort of stuff gets way more money than R&D. I, I think that their cover-your-butt uh, answer th- that they're doing R&D with the, all the income is just poppycock, you know? The field of neurofeedback's efficacy being required to have a control study with the placebo is actually not ethical. Uh, World Health Helsinki's uh, statement basically said, if there's a known treatment that, that has efficacy, you can't do something to test your alternative with a placebo control. You can put both horses on the track and run them and see which one is better, but you can't make up a placebo horse and put it in the race because it's not ethical. If you're withholding treatment by giving a placebo, you're not uh, being ethical to the patient. So there are people that will demand that neurofeedback have a placebo control, but it's, it's not, I mean, you couldn't get that through an IRB. So the people that are making that demand are non-scientific. Um, and, yeah, demanding an unethical, uh, you know, uh, move, uh, which is ridiculous. The difficulty in neurofeedback is the funding. And, you know, studies are small and they're too small to really make any kind of statement. And the answer to that is meta-analyses. And a meta-analysis basically sets a standard for what kind of study. They look at Scopus and PubMed and, and uh, look for uh, randomization and control, even if it's a little tiny study, and they group them together uh, and, and study the, the, the larger N. So a meta-analysis is basically the, the answer to that. Now, in neurofeedback for ADD, ADHD, as an example, 2009, Martin Arns uh, basically looked at a meta-analysis and uh, found that neurofeedback was superior to uh, uh, sham as well as uh, medication alternatives. Uh, more recently than that, uh, 2014, uh, they showed uh, cognitive training and, and other control groups were not uh, as, as effective, um, suggesting actually uh, in a, a 2018 review uh, that, that uh, there was specificity, uh, not only effective, but it was also perhaps even more effective than medication. And at that point, they found in the meta-analysis, the long-term follow-up medications with a long-term follow-up after not just at outtake, but like 24 months or 12 months later, the medication fails, Um, their feedback remained. But, you know, um, if you look at cognitive training or control groups that had some sort of um, 
uh, uh, people intervening and, and interacting with them and that sort of thing, they also end up having sustained effect longer term. So it's not just neurofeedback that can have a, a progressive uh, benefit. Uh, medication is just not one of those. And then 2020, there were two major meta-analyses done, uh, four randomized control studies, three open-label studies. Um, th they basically found remission rates between 32 and 47%. Now, you know, everybody that's probably heard the 80% success stuff, uh, here's a remission rate of 32 to 47%. And they said, well, we do better than that. Uh, actually not. Uh, when, when you put a strict criteria of remission, not did you get something out of your training asked by the therapist, which is a little coercive, you, you get the 80-20 re reaction, but that's not necessarily remission. Uh, that that's some benefit, but not necessarily remission. Uh, when we studied it uh, with a, an N of 60 uh, with standard protocols and another N of 40 with uh, QEG driven protocols, we found that the re remission rates, the total elimination of the diagnosis of ADD, you can't diagnose it anymore behaviorally and a physiological uh, change associated with the training. We, we found just a little over 30% success. It, corresponds precisely with this 32 to 47% remission rate in the 2020 review. And again, another study by, my, by Martin Arns in, uh, at all. Uh, he, he publishes a lot uh, and the quality of the work being done is always exemplary. So uh, I would love to have the, uh, the funding uh, to, to, to step up with a gigantic study to uh, kind of answer these things, but uh, it, it's, it's, they're being answered by smaller studies um, that are well done. Uh, Europe has a lot of uh, small study funding. Uh, the EU, uh, some individual countries, Germany, uh, Austria, France, uh, that, uh, and England, they, they've all funded uh, studies within their own country, and those smaller studies end up adding up again uh, when you do a meta-analysis. John Anderson, you know, brought up the point that I think I asked him, you know, why, why isn't neurofeedback being taught in the universities? And, and his, his response was that there's so many facets to it. You know, you got to know physiology, you got to know neurology, you got to know electronics and physics and chemistry. And there, there's so many things, you know, they, they haven't developed departments that, that teach neurofeedback. And so I'm sure that's, that's part of the reason that there's not funding. I mean, universities aren't aren't funding um, the neurofeedback research because there, there's no programs there. In, yeah. In, yeah. in Europe, they do have programs that right. uh, whole departments that are oriented to it uh, and have had, I mean, uh, Tübingen University has had uh, a major focus on the neurofeedback area uh, since late sixties, early seventies with uh, Niels Burbomer's work. Um, when he retired, Uta Strail took over, uh, now she's retired. Now their lab has switched its orientation a little bit away from neurofeedback because you know these things happen as as department heads uh, change their their interests, uh, uh, you know, drift into other areas. But uh, Salzburg, Austria's consciousness and sleep lab, uh, Graz, Austria's uh, um, technical university, uh, Gert Furcheller's lab. Um, th these are major universities. 
uh, Open University in England in 2011. I uh, did the first European uh, QEG and neurofeedback workshop. Uh, Yuri Kropotov and I were invited over to, to teach uh, at Open University. So it, it's, it's happening more in Europe than in the US. And again, uh, as one of the hippies in the early meetings, I have to apologize for the bad reputation the field got, you know, just being a bunch of hippies. But, you know, that the, there were solid researchers like Sturman and uh, Camilla. Uh, there were military researchers from DARPA um, and there were hippies. And, uh, you know, that the reputation of being just a bunch of hippies is probably not quite correct. Um, but uh, there was a fair number of us in the audience, you know. Right. So, so here in the States, you know, we're, we're battling the, the psychiatric uh, boards. I, I remember back in, it was 1992, uh, Lori Russell, uh, uh, someone we've had on, on the show before, she wrote a, recently wrote a textbook on uh, neurofeedback and psychotherapy using uh, the hybrid approach. But back in 1992, we marched on uh, Springfield, Illinois, the capital uh, here in Illinois, uh, trying to be approved to be licensed in counseling. So mental health counseling, there's different licenses here, right? You can be a psychologist, you can be a psychiatrist, uh, a different training for sure. But the counseling, you couldn't uh, get a license and you couldn't directly get paid for being a counselor. And so, yeah, we, we marched on uh, Springfield, Illinois, up against the Psychiatric Association, and they had you know, high, high paid lawyers and they, you know, they knocked it down quite a few times and eventually passed, but you know, that that's what we're battling against still in the big pharma. I mean, how, how do you, you know, compete with, you know, that kind of uh, bank account, you know, certainly that that's where neurofeedback, uh, you know, our, our gloves are smaller. Hey Jay, you had shared a, a link to a video. Is it Thomas Ross? Am I saying the last name, right? Yeah. Ross. From, yeah. R-O-S. From, from, yeah. And, and Thomas, uh, not Thomas. Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. Yeah. And Thomas Ross uh, over in Alaska, right? Yeah, but Thomas, Thomas Ross. Yeah. Uh, and he's in Geneva, and and maybe Pete, we can share this in the links. But he does a decent job of going back historically and talking about studies. And you know, historically in the '70s, there was more giant drop off '80s, '90s, and then it picked back up, and it's increasing uh, incrementally. Yeah. Um, but substantially now. And he also talks about some of his own studies. So just for folks out there listening, I think he does a decent job reviewing and then pointing out what you're saying is that it is concentrated largely in Europe. There's uh, other places around the world, obviously, but they have funding. It's tough to get just like everywhere else too. But um, he also talks about maybe the future of neurofeedback where it might be headed and, and the possibilities, which is hope, you know, that um, it gets integrated into medical applications and things. So anyway, I, I found it interesting and, and again, hopeful. Yeah. And, you know, you can see the quality of the, uh, the, the science that he's doing too. you know, fMRI, uh, PET scan, mm-hmm. uh, neural network uh, identification. I mean, he's, uh, he's at the very le- bleeding edge <laughs> of, of the science. I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, not quite fully adequate funding, but uh, just enough to kind of squeak by. And um, 
his graphics on uh, uh, the number of studies, publishable studies across time, uh, seeing the bulge of them from uh, initially Camille and Sturman, late 60s, early 70s, that surge of interest in operant conditioning of EEG, which was a, one of the terms that has to be inserted in there, in or, or classical conditioning as well. But you get that, that burst in the 70s. But uh, the government quit funding studies based on a really bad study by Pashkowitz and Orn. You know, the, the government basically just quit funding. You know, late 70s, the, the numbers kind of collapsed. But they, they sputtered back to life. Uh, they, they barely made it through the 80s, you know. Uh, Lubar and Sturman were kind of the remaining uh, few. Margaret Ayers, but she wasn't really a big publisher. Uh, eventually, things picked back up. Uh, I, I would like to point out that in 1997 on, that graph took off like, like the COVID graphs did, you know, zoop, some exponential increase. And I'm actually although, looking at it right now, Jay. Yeah. Although I can't claim responsibility for it. In 1997, I took over running the meetings for ISNR. The first meeting I held uh, was in Aspen, and we had 75 paying people. You know, that's you can't call that a, meet, a, a conference. That's like a small enclave, you know, but it's not, a, a, you know, that's a, not a respectable size group. Um, uh, within 10 years, we had 500 people in the meetings. You know, I can't claim total responsibility for that, but I planned a really good party and I invited scientists that didn't know anything about neurofeedback to teach some neuroscience at the meeting and get exposed to neurofeedback. So they would go back to their laboratory infected with a, with a virus of neurofeedback and contaminate their own lab, you know? So we, we invited people from Europe and they came over. Their labs were not doing neurofeedback, but they were doing good neuroscience about EEG. So they taught some EEG, but they went back home with the idea of voluntary control over the EEG. And that suddenly entered into their experiments. Salzburg, Austria, Consciousness Sleep Lab. I invited Wolfgang Klemisch, who's the head of the lab, but he was booked already because, you know, they book out a couple of years ahead of time. Uh, but he, he uh, sent over Michael Doppelmeyer. Uh, uh, Michael's a brilliant uh, young professional at the time. Uh, we exposed him to Sturman and we exposed him to the solid people in the field and we kind of steered him away from a few of us, you know, and, uh, uh, but uh, he went back, uh, he flew back and then was picked up out of Frankfurt and, and driven back to Salzburg by Wolfgang. They basically in the drive back came up with three years of research using neurofeedback in order to test things that they had previously identified. You know, people with slow alpha, have poor semantic and declarative memory. People with fast alpha have better semantic and declarative memory. Great correlational study. What about taking the people with a slow alpha and teaching them to speed it up and seeing if that actually is a causal relationship, not a correlation? In fact, they did that study. And when you speed up the person's alpha, their semantic and declarative memory does improve. So those kinds of inserting the virus in, in, into the entity so it replicates uh, was a, 
a, a dirty little trick of mine, but uh, it seems to have worked because all the major labs in Europe are wide open to neurofeedback. You can go there, propose a PhD, um, and you don't get uh, counseled. Well, you should really find something else so you don't, you know, kill your career. Uh, in the U.S., it's been hard to find a university that will offer, uh, you know, a person who wants to do an neurofeedback study uh, a spot and, you know, to do their their study in the department. Um, Andrew Hill is is uh, in the field now. He's a very uh, powerful young uh, professional and uh, very brilliant. Uh, many years ago now, he, he called me and said, you know, where can I go for a respectable PhD that will allow me to do a neurofeedback study? And I pointed him to Aaron Zidell's lab, the brain lateralization lab at UCLA. Uh, who I, I knew he was open to neurofeedback. Uh, Sturman had been at UCLA. Uh, UCLA isn't going to throw you out for it as long as you've got a department that can host you. And um, he went through and, and got his PhD out of UCLA, uh, uh, you know, focused on neurofeedback. But I couldn't have pointed him at 10, 10 places, that's for sure. You know, hey, Andrew but, Hill, peak, peak Brain. Yeah, uh, he's, peak, he's a, a brilliant peak brain guy. Yeah. I, I, would, uh, uh, I would suggest if you've got uh, the possibility of seeing him as a professional, you're, you're in good hands, you know. Jay, you've been in the biz a while, the 70s. You've been president. I forget of ISNR. What what was the organizations you were president of? Uh, well, the the uh, Biofeedback Society of California. I was president twice. The the last time I had got up to to leave the board meeting to go pee because I've got diabetes insipidus, and I came back in. They they nominated me as the in uh, the next president and adjourned the meeting. So. Um, okay. Yeah, you, you you can't turn your back on these people. Um, so, you, but I, I I was president of the uh, the uh, then I think was actually SSNR maybe, but it could have been ISNR. Okay. The names has changed, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and I was I was on the board of uh, APB as the treasurer for three years and um, treasurer. That's where I'm going, Jay. If we need bigger gloves, why haven't all the practitioners pulled some money to fund a study? How much does a study cost, Jay? Uh, we did get a recently uh, completed funded study, um, multiple millions of dollars out of NIH to study uh, ADD, ADHD. Um, uh, the, uh, the, there was a study out of Ohio uh, that, that basically uh, concluded that uh, the neurofeedback wasn't effective. And we looked at their study and they made a foundational mistake in their protocol. Uh, they, they put on an auto thresholding. You know, auto thresholding is something that the manufacturers have uh, that can change the, the, how difficult it is. Now, let's say you're a track coach. Somebody's doing high jump and you, you adjust the bar so that they can always go over it. Well, they're not going to get any better you know, you're defeating the operant principle. And, and here you're now studying the outcome of, of teaching people to jump over and lowering the bar so that they can get over it whenever they want. I mean, the, the, it's ridiculous to expect operant training. And neurofeedback may not be just operant training, but there's some of that in there as well. But you're, you're defeating the, the, the underlying uh, neuroscience of the learning curve. And 
um, and then trying to conclude what the what the training does. So um, the, actually the author of that study accepted that critique and helped design the final study that was funded. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, I, I've seen a, a triple blind uh, a study that used the same faulty uh, auto thresholding. So, you know, the, uh, the, the people who have gotten funding haven't always paid attention to protocol. Uh, you know, what, what is it you're training and how? And uh, uh, you, you know, you can't do a bad job with what you're training and how you're training it and then make a, a conclusion that's valid. So, uh, you know. Uh, well, I'm just thinking, how many practitioners are there in the United States in the world? It would behoove everybody to have a society where money is put in to fund these studies, get the results, a neurofeedback university, you know, neuro noodle university for the lack of a better one. I'm just wondering <laughs> why that hasn't, why that hasn't been done yet, or maybe it will be done. Well, wind the clock back, look at the field's behavior uh, since the seventies and eighties. And it's kind of like a circular firing squad, you know, and, and if everybody is aiming in the same direction, we may be able to pool our funds and get something done. But if we're shooting at each other, uh, it, it, it's hard to promote the field. Our, our field has effectively not promoted itself well using the circular firing squad method uh, for the last 45, 50 years. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it used to be worse. It's getting much better. The, the professional societies um, have kind of broken down the small campism of um, uh uh, people that hang around uh, 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 an educational figure, uh, almost like a religion, uh, a, a guru-y uh, person that has a cluster of people studying under him. And, you know, those, uh, there, there were always groups following various individuals and uh, they, they would snipe at each other. If you were in one group and you were seen hanging out with somebody in the other group, you became ostracized. So, uh, luckily, some of the social events, remember when I was running the meetings, I would plan a damn good party. Uh, we had Jimmy Vaughn's band play for us twice while I ran the meetings. Um, I did uh, eight out of 10 years I ran their meetings. And uh, uh, I, I would plan a really good party and then invite good neuroscientists. And the, the field grew really well. And uh, again, it, it reached people that it wouldn't have reached if it was just the small camps. Um, uh, winter brain happened uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s. And um, uh, 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 the winter brain was uh, a social event. They were, uh, <laughs> their, their meetings uh, had hotel contracts that guaranteed that people could stay in the hot tub all night. And uh, that uh, uh, as long as they weren't, grossly too noisy they wouldn't be kicked out and uh, uh that you know that uh, they, they it was it was a gigantic social event and camps mixed and you know gee those people in this other camp actually have some pretty good ideas you know so the cross-pollination but it, we still haven't quite gotten away from the uh, uh the circular nature of the the field and uh, we, we do need to kind of all orient into the same direction and put our shoulder to the wheel. Uh, but until we can actually agree on the direction, 
it's, it's pretty hard. There are uh, groups that basically denigrate studies. Oh, we don't need no stinking studies. You know, uh, we, we know our stuff works uh, and we can do everything with it. Well, I'm sorry, but nothing does everything. Uh, so, you know, let, let's, let's be real, actually do some studies. And not everybody agrees to that studies are needed. Oh, well. You know, uh, uh, like I say, it's a lot better now than it was, but we still have a long way to go to kind of line up. Who, who would need to be lined up, Jay? Like BCIA, Stearns? I mean, who? Oh, th- th- those are usually pretty organized uh, entities. If all of the vendors um, pushed in the same direction, yeah, th- things could move somewhat. Uh, I've basically oriented myself to try to support the students um, uh, more than the organizations even. If the students are our future, it's time to ante up, toss some funds in for the students. That, that's, I've auctioned off my beard for $17,000 over the years. <laughs> that's low overhead. <laughs> pay for it's, a third of that it's, drug. It's, it's, it's underhead, you know? Yeah, it, you know, but $17,000 doesn't sound like much. But for students, you know, I know, uh, I, I actually uh, asked uh, an organization to figure out a way to hand out money to the students. And it took them three months. And they said, well, we don't know how to equitably hand out the money. What? If you can't figure out how to give away somebody else's money, you're not really thinking very hard, are you? You know, um, and, and it forced me to walk into a student party with a hand, a, a roll of hundreds and uh, everybody had a student tag. You could tell from a distance from the big green dot on their badge that they were a student. I would say, are you a student? They said, oh, yes. Well, I peel off 100. Congratulations. You made the right choice in the field. Hand out $3,000 worth of, of hundreds uh, to, to the students at a party. And th- that's not really a good way to do it. You know, I mean, uh, the, the first student they handed it to was a young woman. And, you know, she was kind of the approach avoidance. I want the hundred dollars, but what do you think you're going to get for this? You creepy old dude, you know? So, uh, yeah, so I, you know, it's, it's an awkward circumstance to hand it out like that, but it's the best I could do. Um, so, uh, you know, fostering the students, I think is a, is a really positive way to, uh, to leverage the, if you, but I don't get it, Jay. Students don't have any money. What are they going to do? And there's no well, courses. Pete, to... Pete, what's the last if, name of the Mart, Martin Martin? Martin Arns. A-R-N-S. So Martin talked about self-funded studies that they do in their institute. And I remember, Laura, you had some interest in that, too. And I, and I was interested, like, hey, how you doing it? Maybe we could uh, converse Go with fund him again. Me. Yeah, right. On, on no, but go fund me. Yeah, do it a private. Uh, try to get some private investors. Uh, they're they're doing it right, and I don't know if you know Jay, but they're they're funding their own studies. Um, I've been involved in those studies. Yeah, uh, you know, I uh, I used to be able to travel to Europe. I used to travel there quite often and do lectures. And Martine would set up a lecture for me. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, when I walk in the door, he's got 49 ADD cases and 49 MASH controls. And I've got to go through the data and sort them for phenotypes and then look to see if a phenotype predicts stimulant response, like the theory of the phenotype paper uh, predicted. Um, uh, next time I walk in, there's 126 depressives and 126 MASH controls. 
um, you know, they pulled the data. Uh, I, I, I sorted them for phenotype. Um, uh, they, they, they end up, uh, you know, it's an in-house, no funding. Um, the, 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 the data is there. Um, they pull the data. Uh, they, they, they know uh, which one of the ADD, ADHD kids respond to stimulants. They just don't tell anybody who's looking at the data. Um, right. Actually, after, uh, after we predicted accurately uh, who responded to stimulants based on the uh, EG endophenotypes, uh, they offered a $5,000 reward to any group that could get a better reaction or a better, uh, better prediction uh, accuracy than we did. And uh, there was only one group that tried, the European Vigilance Model uh, folks, and um, uh, uh, they, they didn't do quite as well as we did. But they didn't offer, uh, they didn't offer the 5000 to us, that's for sure. So, but I wouldn't have taken it anyway. I would have given it to some student group. The students are our future. And if you treat them really well later in their career, they're going to have limited funds and they're going to need to make a choice as to what meeting they go to. And if they remember, damn, I had such a damn good time at that one meeting. I think I'm going to go back there. Quite honestly, most of the people that are on are now presidents and on the board of directors and so forth were students at one point. And they felt a duty to pay back uh, to the society that had treated them so well. Uh, some of them have been president multiple times. I think treating the students well is one way to, in a very low budget way, uh, uh, leverage the field forward as well. Okay, guys. So we started with Alzheimer's, $58,000 drug, down to funding for studies for neurofeedback. Somebody came to me and said, hey, Pitch in a hundred bucks is we're going to do this study that will help prove because we know ADHD has high efficacy to have this study to make it valid. So the insurance companies will pay for it. I would think everybody would pitch in whatever the, the amount is that uh, actually we've got pretty uh, solid evidence at this point. It's just that most people don't know uh, where it all is. Uh, even people in the field don't necessarily track all the research. Um, yeah. And uh, if you'll allow me to share uh, the screen for a moment. Here, let me. This is actually, let's get our images out of the way. This is basically a, a paper that's been produced. It's very nicely done. Uh, uh, this is Brain Futures um, uh, 2020. And uh, it's, uh, it's got a lot of great material in it. Uh, You'll see Martine Arns, uh, David Cantor uh, from the U.S., um, uh, this specious character here, <laughs> um, uh, 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 Fred Schaefer, who's well-known within the neurofeedback world and biofeedback world, uh, and, and Mark, um, that basically a, an advisory uh, group to this. You can see it's a – I would urge you to get a hold of this. Um, yep. Uh, brainfutures.org um, is a, an easy spot to, to, to find it. It's well-balanced. It's not an overstatement of the science, um, uh, but it does have uh, all, all of the detail of the meta-analyses that have been done. You, you guys talked about the, the rate of acquisition of the research. Uh, they, they've got a a graphic in here, as, as they say, if you, if you get dizzy, just close your eyes. Um, 
uh, here we are. This doesn't have operant conditioning of EEG, so you don't see the early bounce quite the same, but you see the exponential increase uh, uh, starting in, in the mid-1990s. Uh, and yeah. uh, here, uh, Scopus, Google, and, and Web of Science is the, the three uh, that are being tracked across time. So uh, uh, this document is public domain. You don't, you know, it, they'll be happy to hand it out to you. But I, uh, I would suggest that uh, this kind of information ends up refuting those that say it doesn't work. Um, and, uh, you know, that we have to have a double blind placebo controlled study. You know, all, all that kind of stuff is all. Uh, addressed quite professionally in this uh, in this publication. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. That's awesome. I do think that the solutions are out there. It's just not everybody ends up uh, focusing on the same kind of uh, support. So, got it. And another plug for that. It, it's not not to take away from its importance or or just scientific backing or basis, but it's slick too. Like it looks good. It's easy to read. It's not a you know, a journal article, which, to be honest, can be good, uh, you know, sleep aid sometimes. Uh, it, it looks good. It's got colored graphs. It, the information is really digestible. So, again, just a, a plug, an extra plug. Yeah. And, and it's not uh, quite as waspy as the, as the field is either. I mean, the, if you go to the meetings, you know, old white guys and, you know, the, the brochure ends up having uh, a good mix of people in it, but it's solid science and it's very well produced. Uh, it was produced basically by a group that was, was hoping to ask for parity. Parity is being treated equally uh, with uh, other health conditions like a broken leg, pancreatitis. I mean, if you've got something medical wrong with you, you get treated and you get treated yeah, they, they pay for a certain amount of support for to help, you know, get you better. Well, uh, Parity was um, uh, was sued for autism in Washington State. And the parents won, and the insurance companies have to pay up to five hundred thousand dollars a year for therapy for the autistic kids. So uh, um, they're they're looking with this document to ask for Parity. Um, uh, for uh, ADD, ADHD, and mental health conditions, um, uh, which are under fire at this point. There's, yeah. there's actually a state that's looking to uh, eliminate mental health coverage, uh, help their budget. <laughs> if you want to ruin your state, you, you cut back yeah. on your mental health support. You know? don't, don't go to, to the ER for mental health. You'll be there for a while. Yeah. All right, guys. Great show. We thank everybody for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcasts. Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. Jay Gunkelman, he's all over the place. Ideas for a topic, please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For everything that we talked about will be in the show notes. Uh, guys, please check up on me. I got pages and pages of notes here. If I if I forget something, email me and I'll I'll put it in there. Everybody have a great weekend. Thanks for setting up the Neuro Noodle podcasts.